instead of uh, instead of uh, going into Ruth and Esther, which was my plan, uh, kind of ruin sort of the women's thing, right? The women are doing it, the Book of Esther, but we will do it in like uh, one and a half, in just half a lesson. It's how long we'll do Esther, so we'll do a very fast overview of Esther. But this week, instead, I thought there are some things to cover still in Judges that we didn't get to that uh, I didn't even have in my notes that I actually thought I would have loved to touch on. And so, hey, if we're going to go ahead and bleed over from Judges and do uh, a second week in Judges, might as well just go ahead and give the full time to it. So if you had questions the last time that we didn't talk about it at the door, you wanted to ask, um, you know, bring, go ahead and feel free to bring those up as we're doing this. But I had a few other parts of the narrative in Judges that I wanted to cover that I at least wanted us to touch on. Um, so... What, oh, but I'm, I'm going ahead of myself. My book recommendation. Something about 80s and 90s books, Christian books, we just didn't know how to do book covers. I don't know why. A lot of book covers, it's just a guy sitting with his hands folded, kind of turned sideways, like sort of a... a um, yeah, it's a pose. Yeah, definitely pose. There's a few John MacArthur books where he's just kind of smiling at the camera, you know. Uh, we don't do that now, thankfully. Oh, my goodness. But um, uh, I have a book, not a good cover. This is one of the examples of the bad covers. But uh, this is a good book, though. Don't judge this book by its cover. Have any of you read this before? Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson? No. Okay. It's kind of a nerd book, okay? But it's short, so it kind of is less nerdy, right? It'd be, if it was really fat, then it would be very nerdy. Um, but this is a book called Exegetical Fallacies, and what D.A. Carson does in this book is he shows, he uses examples of the myriad ways that we take the scripture and, mis- and misunderstand it. Um, sometimes someone will do an extensive word study, and what will they do in the word study? They'll look at every possible meaning that this word has. And then what will they do? They'll say, this word has a thousand different possible meanings. And they will impute and they will imbue that this particular passage and this particular word with that wide range of meanings. Um, have you ever read an Amplified Bible? Has anyone ever read the Amplified Bible? Yes. Amplified Bible is kind of like that, right? Where they'll give every possible meaning of a word. They'll put it in the brackets right after. And you think to yourself, wow, this could be translated anyway. Well, one of the things he talks about in there is there are word study fallacies. And he talks about the fact that these are word study fallacies where just because a word has a possible meaning doesn't mean that the word has that meaning. Instead, you get the meaning of the word from the direct passage. You get it from the context. So a word that gets used in one place might be used very differently somewhere else. Um, All of that might sound very nerdy. He does something else, though. Have you ever talked to somebody who said, look, I can't believe in the Trinity because the Trinity is not in the Bible? Like the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's true that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but that is actually a fallacy that Carson brings up in in this book. He talks about the fact that just because a word is not used does not mean that a concept is not used. So he said it's called the word concept fallacy. So we know what the word concept fallacy is because someone says, look, Trinity is not in the Bible. Therefore, the Trinity is unbiblical. And yet you go, well, God teaches in the Bible that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Father is God. It teaches that they're not the same person. And it teaches that there only, is only one God. So maybe the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible, but the Trinity is in the Bible. The concept of the, of the Trinity is in the Bible. Just because the word's missing doesn't mean the doctrine is missing. 
Um, he's got sections on that, all kinds of things. So if you ever, if you ever uh, want to sharpen up your Bible reading so that you don't misconstrue things that happen in Scripture, this is just a goldmine. This is a gold mine, and you can actually just look through the, the the table of contents here, and you can browse through it if you want. I have some stuff that I've highlighted, but I'm just going to pass this around. Exegetical Fallacies by D. A. Carson is a good book to read to sharpen up your Bible reading. So there you go, Craig. Thanks. <clears throat> um, as far as the book of Judges goes, one of the things that we did last week, I just sort of went through and I tried to kind of argue that some of the judges are misunderstood. And I picked Jephthah, and I picked Samson, and I tried to argue that these guys are sinners. These guys are not flawless characters. They are not pristine examples of the Christian life by any means. And yet I also wanted to argue that there is something more to them than just, wow, look at this dirtbag. Look at this guy who's so bad. Um, instead, one of the things I was worked on arguing, at least, was that um, these judges that God raises up are really raised up by God. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit, that they are used by God to accomplish what God wants. Yes, they are sinners, but, but the point of the narrative is not the badness of the judge. Now, occasionally you have some judges in the narrative that I don't really have a lot of nice things to say about. You'll remember I didn't have very much nice to say about Gideon. Um, one of the things that you see in the Gideon narrative is that God uses this guy, even though he's faithless, even though he's fearful, uh, he still uses him to deliver Israel. He whittles down the army so that Gideon goes out to battle with almost no one so that nobody could say, well, Gideon, what a great warrior, what a good battle planner that Gideon fellow is, right? Nobody's going to say that when they get to the end of the Gideon narrative. Um, but if you remember what happens at the end of Gideon, what do you guys remember what the people of Israel try to do with Gideon after he wins this victory for Israel? Make him a king. They want to make him king. So they say, you're going to be the king now, Gideon. You're going to be the king. And uh, Gideon, if you remember, let me see if I can find where it is. Oh, I lost it. The people of the, of the city tried to make him king. And he says, no, I'm not going to be the king. They say, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So his salvation that, he, that the Lord uses, to, uses him to bring... They base that and they base their request for him to become the king on this, right? And so Gideon says to them, no, he says, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What a pious answer. What a, what a seemingly great answer for Gideon to give. There's only one problem. Basically for the rest of his life, he rules like a king. Uh, he effectively is the king of Israel. Uh, his son's name is Abimelech. Um, let me just spell it for you because I'm going to show you something. Um, does anybody know what Ab, Abba? Father. But Avi means son. Um, no, sorry, I'm wrong. Abba is father. Abi is just sort of like, um, like a prefix. And it means father. So... Father, 
Does anyone know what Melech is in, in Hebrew? It means king. All right, so in Hebrew, sometimes you have to read between the lines a little bit. Um, but here, Gideon says, look, I'm not going to be the king. I'm not going to rule over you. But then he has a son, and what does he name him? My father is the king. Um, you actually see that even that Gideon kind of talks out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, he talks like a pious man. On the other, uh, on the other hand, he rules like a gangster. He basically runs Israel like a gangster. Um, and that's what he does with his son. He sets his son up so that his son even is sort of this fellow who uh, seems like he maybe is next in line to be the king. Um, what you instead find with Abimelech is Abimelech is sort of like... Um, I usually don't talk about Hollywood movies here. At least I try not to. I've always got them in my mind and in my heart, but I keep them out of the church usually. I try to keep them out of Sunday. I've got time. I'll tell you this. The reason I don't do Sunday morning sermons where I include uh, movie references, there could be a lot of reasons, but one is you've got to sit there and explain the plot. And I have sat in on too many sermons where the pastor spent three or four minutes of his sermon telling us what some superhero movie's plot was. Um, and it could have just been bad guy gets punched, you know. And so, <laughs> so then I just go, no, we're just going to keep movies out of it. You know, not everybody's seen it. You don't want to have to explain it. But how many of you guys saw the Dark Knight, like the Batman Dark Knight movie? Kind of older now, actually. So in the movie, Joker basically gets hired by all of the, all of the, the gangsters in town to take all of their money and to take down Batman. He's going to take down Batman so he stops being a problem for the gangsters. Well, what ends up happening? Joker takes all their money. He sets it on fire. He ends up taking over the whole city. This is kind of like what Abimelech does. Abimelech, like when you're reading the Abimelech narrative, it's kind of wild how it happens. Basically, all the heads of all the families in Israel come to him and they say, hey, Abimelech, you can be our king. You can rule over us. And Abimelech says, sure. He puts them all in a big building and he sets it on fire. Um, Abimelech, uh, he destroys Israel. It's, it's Israel as suicidal is what happens with, with Abimelech because um, he is this anti-judge. That's what, that's what at least my professor, Miles Van Pelt, calls him. He calls him an anti-judge. He's like, in no way is he a savior for Israel. In no way is Abimelech raised up by God. Um, there's no passage here where um, they come to, where God uh, is said to have anything to do with Abimelech at all. This is a self-made man. And he rises to power through his own schemes. And so the families give him this power only to see, them to see him destroy them. They end he ends up saying, look, uh, I can be your ruler, but you're going to have to give me authority. You're going to have to give me power. They say, sure. And then he kills them all. Um, he traps them in a tower, kills thousands of the very people that give him the power. And does anyone know how Abimelech dies? Yes. The woman basically drops drops over a millstone on his head and he perfectly assists his own armor bearer, like, you know, run your sword through me and kill me so they can't say a woman killed him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great. He he a woman kills him and he's like, No, whatever they say about me, they can't say that a woman killed me. Uh, it's like, man, get your priorities straight. Um it's an honor-based society though. It's how he's gonna be remembered. So it just it kind of tells you something about their society. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what happens. It says a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And uh, one of the things that, my, that, that Miles talks about is the fact that 
Abimelech is an anti-judge. He is not a hero in the narrative. He's not raised up by God to be a savior for Israel. This is Israel doing their own version of salvation, right? This is Israel saying, we'll save ourselves. We'll go to this guy. He'll help us out. He seems strong. He seems capable. His name is my father is the king. I mean, this is a guy who seems to have the sort of authority that you need. And yet, and, and so this is a picture of Israel sort of getting their own version of salvation in the middle of all this. And God saying, here's what it looks like to take care of yourself. Go ahead. See what life with someone like Abimelech is like. Um, but if you think about this, this is what happens. After Abimelech dies, Israel has peace again. Israel has rest. Israel has peace with, uh, with, uh, for a season at least. Um, one of the things Miles points out is this. If you look at the Hebrew word for the rock, for where it falls on uh, Abimelech, the word, it says, is skull. It fell and crushed his skull. And in the Hebrew, that word is Golgotha. Like if you actually look at the text, the Hebrew word there is Golgotha. The, the rock fell on his Golgotha. And so one of the things that Miles liked to point out, and I like it, preaches good, uh, is that Abimelech is the anti-king. He is the anti-judge. He is the, he is the person who gets judgment. He is the king of Israel who was not good. He was not a good king. But what happens? He's put to death for the peace of Israel while being struck on the Golgotha. He is the judge put to death for the peace of Israel. Um, but he's not the kind of king you would want. He is not the kind of judge you would want. Uh, and yet at the same time, he's still picturing for us in some way the fact that there is a king coming who's going to be struck. He's going to be killed on the Golgotha for his people. And so it preaches all right. He's rejected by his people. He's struck on the place of the skull and he brings Israel peace. So I wanted to bring up Abimelech, Abimelech, the anti-judge. Um, this is a book with two introductions, two conclusions, six major judges, six minor judges and an anti-judge. Abimelech. Um, what I want you to see, though, in the judges, I want you to see types of Christ. I want you to see types of Christ. When we talk about a type, have I talked about types before in Sunday school and what a type is? I'll just do it because it only takes a few seconds. <laughs> a, a, a type is a person or an institution in the Old Testament that points forward to something greater or someone greater than itself. So you have institutions in the Old Testament that are types of Christ. You have the sacrificial system, which is a type of Christ. You have, uh, indeed, the judges of Israel, which are types of Christ. Because how are they types of Christ? Uh, they are not flawless, but they do point us to a judge who's coming. A judge who's going to save his people. Uh, someone who is used as an instrument of salvation to save God's people. And so when you read the judges... One of the things you're left with is this is the best Israel can do for themselves. And this is God rescuing them from the worst impulses of what could be. So he's constantly going, look, if I just left the people of Israel to themselves, this would be way worse. What's the refrain that keeps happening throughout the book of Judges over and over again? They keep saying it. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that refrain gets repeated constantly. So it's almost like God is saying, here is you without me. And you without me is always oppression by these other governments or oppression by your own people. 
You guys, if you raised up your own deliverer, he would be pathetic. He would be frustrating. He would, he would be oppressive. Uh, it would not be the sort of, of hero that you would want. And then, and then it's like he's saying to us, you need to yearn for a judge who's going to be good. Because every time the judges do come, they get rest for a little while. Uh, they get peace for a little while. But the problem that comes up with the judges is they die. Right? They're mortal. So you'll get somebody like Othniel. And the land will have rest for 40 years or 80 years. But then what happens at the end of that time? The Canaanites rise up or the Philistines rise up and they oppress the people of Israel. And you have the same problem that happens before. Why? Because the judge died. The judge that God raised up to rescue his people can't live forever. And so when you're reading judges, you keep thinking to yourself, you know, it would be great is if one of these judges would be raised up by God and wouldn't die. It's what you find yourself thinking as you're going through the narrative because it's very repetitive. You know, every judge story is, is a little different in some ways, but it's also, also the same in a lot of ways. And the thing you find is, man, this is really repetitive. I find myself wishing that God would just raise one up and keep him there. And one of the things that you, that you hopefully see as you're reading judges is he is going to raise one up who's not going to go away. He is going to bring a deliverer for Israel that's not going to disappoint. He is going to raise up a savior for Israel who's not going to go away. Um, so there is a king coming. So that's one of the big things that you see in Israel over, over and over again, that you really find yourself yearning for, for God to, to um, do something different, to break the cycles. Because for 400 years, he's doing this. And I think he's showing them the futility of the best they can do. He's showing them the futility. And then he's saying, look, I'll step in and I will help you. But you need better than what you can do for yourselves. And I'm going to give you 400 years of history so you know that. Now, the way they turn at the end is they say, look, um, by the end of the book, what have they done? They become like the Canaanites. They become the worst. Just, I'm not even going to talk about the gross episode that happens at the end of Judges. Um, I've said that before. Read it yourselves and not to your children at bedtime. Um, but we need a judge who will never go away. And so the theme of this book, if you were going to give this book a theme, it would be there was no king in Israel. And everyone, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And God is teaching us this lesson that there does need to be a king in Israel. Because the book is almost yearning for a king. Like it's a book that yearns for a king. There being a king in Israel is not sinful. Um, the way that Israel asks for a king and the motive for their asking for a king is sinful. But God builds into the law um, the provisions for a king. For the selection of a king. How a king is supposed to rule. And yet the thing that you start seeing when you get to the king narratives, and we will get there, the thing we're going to see when we go through Chronicles, for example, and First and Second Samuel is the insufficiency of a king, the insufficiency of a human king. So you even get to somebody like David, who just, we hold him up as the king par excellence. We think there's nobody better than David. And yet at the end of it all, you're just like, man, even David's not good enough. We need a better king and we need a better judge. And this book is sort of taking us through uh, all of that. Um, now, here's what I, uh, I will just say. I don't know if this is dangerous. And I'm not going to go on to Esther and Ruth today. We'll save that for next week. But my question is, do you guys have questions about the book of Judges? Or are there specific judges that you're interested in that I didn't bring up in here? Very open-ended. I'm so sorry.
If not, I can't go on to Esther and, Esther and Ruth. Esther, Esther. If I do Esther before they meet on Tuesday, then I won't feel like I'm writing their coattails. That's one, one plus. <clears throat> All right, in that case, we're doing Esther. Um, here's one thing that does make sense about us doing Esther and Ruth right now after talking about judges is that the story of Ruth happens during the time of the judges. So probably we'll do Esther next week, but we'll do, do Ruth now. Um, let's see. Um, if you look at the very first verse of the book of Ruth, it says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So um, the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. So this is contemporaneous with the judges. We don't exactly know which of the judges uh, he is, this is during. But we do know this, that the land is under some kind of judgment. And so, um, and so um, uh, Elimelech and his wife Naomi flee with their children. They say, look, we're getting out of here. There's a famine in the land. It's time for us to go. Um, she and her husband, Naomi and her husband, are from Bethlehem. And there is a famine in the land. Now, here's one of the things I, I think is worth pointing out. Does anyone know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? House of bread. House of bread. There's a famine in the house of bread. Like, just feels like, I don't know, it just feels like an episode title. There's a famine in the house of bread. Um, this place that should have all, everything that they need has nothing that they need, so much so that they have to flee. Um, they decide to flee so that they can find food. When you're talking about the book of Ruth, you have a couple of levels of what's, what, what the book actually is. On the one hand, it's a great drama. You read through the book of Ruth, you can do it in one sitting. It only takes maybe 15 or 20 minutes, depending on what kind of a reader you are. Uh, you get to the end of the book, and on one level, you're reading this great human drama. There are, are, is character development. There is uh, interesting people. Um, you're, you care about the individuals. Um, it is just a great read. So on one level, you have this great story. On the other hand, you actually have a narrative that is telling us how David's great-grandparents met. I mean, really, that's the story. How did David's great-grandparents meet? And how did we have King David at all? What were the things that God went through in order to engineer the events of the universe so that there was a such thing as a person named Boaz who marries a woman named Ruth, who has a son named Obed, who gives birth, whose wife gives birth to King David? Where do we get King David from? So there's this higher level of the book. But when you're reading the book, it doesn't come through. You don't see any mention of, of King David. Instead, you just see um, his family tree sort of coming together. Um, so on one level, it's how did we get King David? On the other level, it's a story of how God will do whatever it takes to keep his promise to Abraham. Um, this is God's dedication to his promise uh, lived out for his people. So... Uh, Ruth is not the woman that gets introduced at the beginning. It's Naomi. Naomi and her husband, they sojourn. They go um, uh, into the uh, land of Moab, which, of course, the Moabites, the Israelites aren't supposed to go there. They're not supposed to be among those people. Um, Naomi is, uh, by the way, there's theological significance to a famine. 
In the Old Testament, you know, today we, we, we know about a famine. What do we do? We interpret it as ecological or we interpret it as economic, but we certainly wouldn't think of it as theological, right? We wouldn't interpret it as God doing something or, or something along those lines. At least that's not our national impulse to do that. Our national impulse is not to go, there's a famine. We should all be praying. You know, there's a pandemic. We should all be praying. Instead, our impulse is, oh, this is about economics, or this is about medicine, or this is about uh, economics, or whatever. This is just how we think as moderns. And yet, we need to make sure when we're reading a narrative like this that we see a famine and we don't think, okay, this is about the rain patterns in ancient Israel. No, this is about God. When, when, when famines would happen in the land in ancient Israel, it was, it was meant to have theological significance because these are his covenant people. And when you read the, the covenant punishments, you read the covenant sanctions in Deuteronomy, one of the things that he tells them is, if you disobey me, then there will be famine in the land. There's going to be a, a, a drought. You're not going to have water. You're not going to have all these comforts that you wanted before. And so what, is, what are Naomi and, and Elimelech doing by fleeing from Israel? They're trying to escape the judgment of God. Um, I don't say that so you think badly of Naomi and Elimelech. They are doing something that, they, that makes sense to them and their family, but they are stepping outside of God's plan because God's plan is for them to stay in the land and live with in, in Bethlehem and to, yes, yeah, suffer the consequences of his judgment. Um, but they do this anyway. They sidestep those consequences. They go to the land of Moab. While they're in the land of Moab, it turns out you can't always sidestep the judgment of God. Elimelech dies. Naomi is widowed. She is uh, in the land. Her sons die also. So she is now left with only the two wives who marry their two sons. So anyone remember the names of the wives? I mean, one is easy, but the other one's trickier. It's Orpah and Ruth. And they had, she has these two, two women in her life that she didn't even know before that were no part of her life that if she had stayed in Israel, she never would have known. They would have been just people off in a distant land that she would have had no knowledge of. But by God's providence, she's taken to the land of Moab. She brings them back with her. Um, they fend for themselves. Uh, she, uh, they, they fend for themselves. Uh, they are all widows. It's a group of three widows, basically. And Naomi says to them, you should leave. You know, you're still young. You can still marry. Go find husbands. Survive. And Orpah tearfully leaves. She leaves reluctantly. And yet Ruth remains with Naomi. And when Ruth remains with Naomi, she makes this solemn vow. It's one of those really striking statements in the Bible. It's really hard not to appreciate uh, what uh, Ruth says to her. She says in chapter 1, verse 16... Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. So think of what Ruth is doing here. She's not just saying, I'll go with you wherever you go. She's also binding herself to God. She's making an oath, and she's taking Yahweh to be her God now. She is, in effect, becoming an Israelite. She is becoming somebody who is a God-fearer, somebody who believes in Yahweh, someone who trusts in Yahweh. And she says, I'm as bound to you now as I am to God. And I'm as bound to God as I am to you. I am not going to leave you. So it's, it says here, before she leaves, 
It says, she heard in the field of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. In other words, we can go back to Israel now. We left Israel to escape the trouble. We, I think she probably would tell you she should have stayed. But they, they, they leave this land. They go back to Israel. Very different people. A very different woman. She has a very different life situation. Um, the famine is over. She is a woman of no position. She has no husband. She has no means. They are just beggars working in the fields. They're just gleaning in the fields. What are they doing? Well, you know, in Israel, they gave opportunities for, for, the, for people to make sure you didn't harvest everything. Don't take everything. Leave stuff in the corners of the fields. So she goes out and she's working in the fields and she's taking sort of the, the stuff that they would leave on the edges of the fields because that's what the law said they were supposed to do. You can't harvest everything. You got to leave something. And then the passage actually says that by chance, which is a great saying because it's completely uh, not what we think of as chance. But the, the narrative, the writer wants us to know that by all appearances, Ruth didn't engineer this, that Naomi didn't engineer this, that nobody engineered this except God Almighty. By chance, she ends up in the field of Boaz and Boaz happens to have this family connection that allows them to redeem the land. Now I'm going to talk about what a redeemer is. And I'm going to talk about how you understand what a kinsman redeemer, what he does. This is Boaz. I have great handwriting. Um, when you read the book of Joshua, you see that Israel gets apportioned out to all the 12 tribes. Each of the 12 tribes gets a certain territory that they're assigned. And what this meant was that if somebody wanted to buy or sell land, it had to be within their family. So if, if, if the tribe of Benjamin has a piece of land, they can buy and sell that land. But it can't be to somebody who's uh, from Judah. Uh, it has to be within Benjamin because this is Benjamin's territory. Right? You don't want the people of Judah just buying up Dan's land and buying up everybody else's land. And eventually it all becomes Judah's property. That's not the plan God has. The plan God has is everybody has their own allotted section and you keep your family with your family. You keep your land with your family. Okay. So then um, a kinsman, and that meant that if someone wanted to buy land, you go, you've, you've got to be, it's got to stay in the land or it can be taken over by other family members. So if the tribe of Dan tried to buy land within Benjamin, then tribe of Dan, they could just have the land just taken from them. And so a kinsman redeemer is somebody from the family who is able to buy land from a relative who died because the land has to stay within the family. And also, um, the idea was that you provide a son for the deceased man. So in this case, who's the deceased man? It's actually Ruth's husband. So Ruth's husband is the deceased man who, in essence, had the right to the land. <laughs> You know, he's the son of Elimelech and the son of Elimelech has a right to this land and the wife doesn't. It's just the way that the, the property laws worked in ancient Israel. And so Boaz would have been a near relative of Ruth's husband. That's just, <laughs> just family stuff, right? Um, so Boaz is an opportunity, not just for Ruth, but in a sense for her son to have a child. Um, the idea is that this son's even going to have his name. Um, so Ruth takes a chance. She basically proposes to Boaz. It's one of those really uh, n uh, nervy moments in scripture where a woman basically proposes to a man. 
And um, he agrees to marry Ruth. And by extension, he makes Naomi his family. Suddenly, now there's a man in the family who's able to take possession of the land. Now, there are complications along the way. There's the narrative, of course, of uh, the guy who holds the land. And how do you convince this guy to sell the land? Um, which is all part of the drama of the narrative, right? Just because the wedding is going to happen, just because the, the kinsman redeemer can do this, is it going to work? Is the guy who has the land going to give it back so that her family can have a chance at a future? And in the, by the end of the story, what is Naomi doing? She is holding the child of Ruth and Boaz. And the little boy's name is Obed. And so you have Boaz, who has Obed, who has Jesse, who has David. And so that's the narrative connection here between this and the king of Israel, which is coming up in the narrative. So Obed is King David's great-grandfather. There's a lot of complication. If I didn't have to say it so fast, it would have been uh, more dramatic, I think. (laughs) Just burning through. Just here's what happens in the narrative. Um, So let's talk about some themes of the narrative. That's sort of the the broad narrative of the book. But what are some themes of the book? One of of the themes of the book is the character of Ruth. Ruth stands out in this book. Um, You read the book of Ruth and and you are just blown away by her loyalty. You know, she stays with Naomi when when Orpah doesn't. Um, She stays even though it's costly. She, um, She swears to her own hurt. She basically says... Even if you find yourself in trouble, I'm still going with you. I'm not going to abandon you. Um, um, she's a picture of loyalty. Um, you see not only her loyalty, you see her kindness. By the way, Boaz sees a virtuous woman when he looks at Ruth. And so I'm just, I'm just highlighting the character traits that I think Boaz would have seen in this woman. Um, she's loyal. He sees, he knows the story. He knows how it is that she's bound to this woman. He knows that she has said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. This woman is in effect now a Moabite Israelite. She's, she's a, a native now. And she cares, for, she cares for Naomi. She had no obligation to care for Naomi. It's actually, if you read the passage where she binds herself to Naomi, in the... It's hard, it's hard actually not to have tears in your eyes when you think of what she's doing there. Um, to think of what Naomi would have been like if Ruth had not decided to be with her, not to bind herself to her. Um, Boaz calls her kind. He uses that word to describe her. He says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. He sees that this is a woman not just who doesn't just go through the motions of, of virtue, but she's actually got a kind heart. Um, not a, not, that is not something you should take for granted if you find a kind person. You find a kind person to marry. It's actually a great trait to look for in a spouse. Um, my wife's not in here, right? Okay, good. When I met my wife, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but we only dated for three weeks and got engaged. Um, we were married in six months after we met. And the reason that I asked her to marry me after three weeks was I saw two things in her. I saw kindness and I saw honesty. Those were two things. And I thought to myself, we don't really know each other. We really are strangers to each other. Uh, but I think we can learn to love each other if, if, if we're kind and if we're honest with each other. 
And I know she'll hold up her end. My job is to also be, be kind and, <laughs> and honest. Um, but I knew it just, it just oozed out of her. And I think you guys probably see that in my mm-hmm. wife, that she's a kind and honest person. Um, and that's what he sees, though, in Ruth. He sees kindness. He sees somebody who's willing to give themselves up for somebody else to let their life plans change for other people. And that is, that is virtuous. He says, here's what he sees that's kind about her, though. He says, you have not gone after younger, young men, whether poor or rich. It's funny. She's thinking to herself when she sees Boaz, man, if only I could marry Boaz. What a catch. And Boaz, when she asks, he goes, you could have any young man you want, poor or rich, and you picked me. He has such a high opinion of this woman that he thinks she could have anybody she wanted. And he says, you didn't do that. Instead, you came to me. I am a lucky guy. No, he's not lucky. It's providence. But he says, he says, in essence, I am a lucky guy that you would want me. He really, like, you, by the way, you just want a spouse who just feels that way that you said yes. (laughs) Like, that's just, that's good. Um, That's a happy, that's a happy foundation for a marriage right there. Um. Another big theme that I already kind of touched on, I've already hinted at, is the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in this situation, in this life, uh, in their marriage, right? God is superintending the events of this book. Now, it's, it would not be true to say that God is not in the book of Ruth. God does get mentioned in the book of Ruth because Ruth says, your God will be my God. But he is not very present in the narrative, uh, he does not come up very often except when people talk about him. But the narrator doesn't say, God did this, God did that, God's providence did this. Instead, it's all assumed. It's something you read between the lines as you're going through the narrative, right? Ruth just happens upon a field belonging to Boaz. Boaz happens to be from Elimelech's family. Um, but all the way, you're seeing how God is about the business of bringing all this together, working all this for a good purpose, and redeeming this woman, redeeming her family line, bringing baby David onto the scene. And by the way, ultimately Jesus. So whenever you're seeing David in the narrative, I, I, as we're going through the Old Testament, I want you to see Jesus. Every time David makes an appearance, you need to see the real King Jesus who's coming. Because all the things that it takes to make David come on the scene, multiply that times 10,000, and that's what it takes for Jesus to appear. Um, God's sovereignty and all of his uh, manifold richness. Another big theme of this book is the inclusion of Gentiles in what God is doing. Um, We need to think of the hero of this book is a Moabite. The hero of the book is a Moabite. The book is named after a Moabite. Um, David's great-grandmother is a Moabite. Um, David has Moabite blood flowing through his veins. Um, He's part Gentile. Um, We need to, uh, there's, there is something of theological significance there. Um, these are among the pagan Canaanites. They were supposed to be driven from the promised land, descendants of the incestuous relations of Lot. There's another story that I don't want to read to your kids. It feels weird to read to them. Um, they are mentioned as the Torah as being specifically banned from the temple. Moabites are banned from the temple. They're not allowed to go in. And yet she becomes an Israelite. Your God will be my God. 
um, the people of the world are brought into Israel. They're brought into Jerusalem. They're made part of God's people. Um, and now she's included in the lineage of King David. A Jew would read this book and they would read Moabite and they would be scandalized and they would be shocked by this book. They would be scandalized by the fact that, that a Moabite is mentioned here. They would be shocked that a Moabite is included because it's, it's, it's unheard of. It's not something, it, it's like dirty people to them. They would have been like, these are dirty people. This would be like um, if a pig went running through the, the mosque over there. Like, that's what it would be like. What are you doing? How did this get in here? The Moabites got in here, and it's our king. They came from our, our king came from them. So um, the reason I want to bring this up is because God's purpose from the beginning has been to include Gentiles. Um, from the beginning, it wasn't like plan B. It wasn't like book of Acts, suddenly Gentiles get included. Oh, wow, this shocked and surprised all of us. It's not like that at all. Instead, um, instead, it's part of his plan. It's baked into how King David came on the scene, and it's baked into how all of us uh, are part of God's church now. You know, I'm a Gentile. Uh, I'm pretty sure most of you are probably Gentiles too. Um, and yet, what does God do? He brings us into his fold. He includes us in the kingdom. He makes us part of this just as much as if we'd been there from the beginning. Um, so when you read Ruth, you need to be reading the story of you. You need to be reading the story of you getting included in God's kingdom, even though you're not worthy and you don't deserve it. Um, that's the gospel. And Ruth is a picture of that. So uh, what, we'll do to, what we'll do next time is get to Esther. We'll talk about Esther. And hopefully I won't repeat too much of what's in the Bible study on Tuesday mornings. Uh, by the way, ladies, Tuesday mornings, Bible study here at, is it 8.30? Nine. nine. Okay, it's nine. So, um, well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you raised up a protector and savior for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you are the one who raised, who raised up uh, a savior. That it's not us, Lord. When we do our very best, we disappoint. Uh, when you send Christ, he gives us all, all that we need. And so we pray, oh God, we pray that you would help for us to rejoice in the fact that you would include us in your covenant people, that you would make us part of your people, uh, that you would rescue and save us, that you would include us at all. We thank you, oh God, you are a kind God. You love your people. We ask that you would be with us today. Thank you for this food that we're about to eat, that we're about to enjoy together. Um, in a way, picturing the fact that we are a family, that we sit at table together, that we are together, that we are part of the same family. We ask that you would do all this, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.